Church. This is Zach Prima, and I'm here with Pastor Alex. And Alex, the, the topic of this podcast, this conversation, is the church as Christian counterculture. <laughs> so first question I have for you is, should the church be countercultural? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The church should be uh, countercultural. Yeah. Okay. What do you mean when you say the church should be countercultural? I mean that one of the things Christ is doing in his formation of the church is creating a new humanity, a new community, uh, where the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth is followed and observed, uh, where people observe the golden rule, follow the Sermon on the Mount, live in accord with Christ's teaching and precepts. And the reason that is so countercultural is because there is nothing like it in the world. Hmm. The church is utterly unique. It's, it's, it's a culture of its own. It's, it, it represents the ethics and way of life of a kingdom, not of this world that is yet to come. And the church is like embassies of that future kingdom here now in the present mm. on foreign soil in a, in a, um, uh, a, a, yeah, a different culture. Mm. We are a distinct Christian culture mm. living according to the ways of Christ in the context of a completely different culture and so jesus speaks in the sermon on the mount for example as the church being a city on a hill hmm. or being the salt of the world uh the light of the world hmm. and in this new community righteousness and peace and uprightness and truth and justice uh reign and shine like the sun hmm. and it is in every way unique i think if i'm not mistaken John Stott wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount to this. I know he wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and I think he, the subtitle is something like uh, the Christian counterculture or Christ's counterculture or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's a, a fascinating answer. It, it's interesting to me, you offered a, a cause and a reason for the church's counterculture. Uh-huh. There's a famous movie from the 50s called Rebel Without a Cause, Mm-hmm. Uh, we shouldn't be counterculture without a cause, should we? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. This is not like, hey, Christian, just be weird, you yeah. know, or, or stand out because that's somehow a good thing to do socially or something like that. No, the, the point is, look, the, the, the way of the Lord Jesus and the precepts of his kingdom, the ethics of his kingdom are in many ways alien to the systems and ways of thinking of this world. And we come as agents of that new kingdom. Hmm the new heavens and the new earth, to promote that kingdom and um, to promote that way of life and to promote the way of Jesus of Nazareth. That was what the church was called in the beginning, those yeah. who follow the way. You right. know, um, Jesus, who is the light of the world, um, has sent us out as agents of that light to penetrate darkness and to advance his kingdom and the distinctive culture hmm. of, of that particular kingdom. Alex, when we speak of counterculture, are we talking about the culture wars of the 80s and the 90s? No, I, I don't think so. Um, really not at all. Alex, I mean, I'm not talking about the 1880s and the 1890s. <laughs> I'm talking about the 1980s yeah, and yeah, yeah, the 1990s. Yeah, sure. The culture wars that, that have been very dear to a lot of Christians in America for a long time, uh, or for the last 20, 30 years. I think that language came into the American canon 
largely due to Pat Buchanan hmm. when he ran for office in the early 90s, spoke of the culture war as a war for the heart and soul of America or something like that. And it was a, uh, the of the culture wars was a, it was a debate and um, over the American way of life or American values. I think that's kind of where the language traditional family values began to be used more. I could be wrong. Got to brush up on my history, but it, it, it the, the the culture wars normally centered around larger social issues, particularly as they had an effect on American life, American life particularly. So issues related to um, abortion gay marriage, uh, the disruption of the nuclear family, things going on in Hollywood and popular culture and censorship and things like that. That's where a lot of the culture war debate and discussion was being had. And those issues aren't unimportant. I mean, issues like abortion, gay marriage are, are gravely important. Mm-hmm. But, but we're not talking about a distinctive American conversation or a preservation of the American way of life when we talk about the Christian counterculture. We're talking about the way of Jesus. We're talking about the values of the kingdom of God, which are not shared across the board in any country in the world. And, and, and even though I think there was a distinct religious component to the culture wars in America, it was not ultimately a desire to advance all of the virtues commended in the scriptures. Hmm. And, and frankly, my personal opinion is that the, the, the way in which those debates were framed were deeply problematic. But no, I, what, I, what I mean, at least when I talk about Christian counterculture, I'm talking about much larger forces than what's limited to American national life. I'm talking about uh, 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 systems at work in this world. I'm talking about worldliness. I'm talking about uh, a world that is caught within the clutches of Satan, the clutches of darkness and sin, and then the way of the Lord Jesus coming in as light, the 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 way of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom coming and making all things new, creating a new community, the church, that actually stands in contradistinction from the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's true now. It will be manifestly evident to all at the last day. But I'm talking about the, the new kingdom of God, which which again, is making all things new. Hmm. Does this idea of the, the new kingdom of God or, or, or counterculture mean we take an adversarial posture towards the world? Yes and no, I would say. Yeah, I think I'd say yes and no. No, in the sense that we love our neighbors hmm. and we're determined to serve them. And um, we believe God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but of everlasting life. And we go to the people of this world as ministers of reconciliation, uh, seeking to bring the message of reconciliation. We go to a lost and dying world imploring them that they can be saved by the grace of Christ and brought into the new humanity, the church, and can be brothers and sisters alongside with us. And so, no, I, I, I love the people of this world. Christians are called to love the people of this world. They're not... We don't view them principally as our adversaries or our enemies. We view them as fellow image bearers, fellow sinners who we stand in solidarity with as sinners ourselves, who we are imploring to come to experience the grace of God, to reconcile them to God through the blood of Christ and also reconcile them with with their neighbors and with with us. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, no, I don't take an adversarial posture. Even though I believe in Christian counterculture in the church, I'm not taking an adversarial, adversarial posture toward people in the world. But I, I could answer that question, yes, in the sense that there is uh, built-in antipathy between the world and the church. So, so I think the Lord Jesus himself acknowledges this in a text like John 3.16. 
God so loved the world, what's emphasized in that text is not the bigness of the world or how mm. attractive the world is, but how bad and dark right. the world is. Right. The created order and active rebellion right. against God. God loves that arena. So much so that he gives his only begotten son. And through his son, people in the world can be reconciled to him. Uh, the apostle John says this in the epistle of First John, or of First John, uh, when he writes, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Worldliness and the forces at work in the world, uh, which is under the rule of the kingdom of darkness, is antipathetic to the kingdom of God and to the church, is, mm. is at odds with the church. Mm. And so we are anti-worldliness, we are anti the world's native ways of thinking under the curse, and we are trying to actually bring about a new way, um, a, a, a new creation, a new humanity. We're trying to bring light into darkness. And so there is, there is this built-in animosity, this built-in antipathy, I think, between the world and the church. So only in that sense would I say we take an adversarial posture. Alex, you've already referenced scripture, but what's some more biblical material that's in your mind when you argue that the church should represent some sort of Christian counterculture? I think of the Sermon on the Mount for sure, as I've already mentioned a couple of times. Jesus, I think, I mean, I don't think he's totally jettisoning, you know, the Old Testament or something like that. He's, he talks about fulfilling the Old Testament in the Sermon on the Mount, but he's, he's, he's I think, setting up that this is the teaching that will govern my kingdom. The kingdom of God theme is so large in Matthew's gospel. Well, this is the ethics of the kingdom. This is the way of life that's present in the kingdom. Could you imagine a world in which everybody lived according to the Sermon on the Mount? Hmm. It's not the world we live in, I can tell you that. Hmm. A, a world in which everyone followed the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount where everyone's meek and peacemakers and lovers of mercy hmm. and um, you know, doesn't murder or commit adultery or lie or steal or be riddled with anxiety. I, if we all lived according to the virtues commended in the Sermon on the Mount and the character and righteousness commended in the Sermon on the Mount, we're talking about heaven. Hmm. We're talking about the kingdom of God and all of its beauty and splendor. So you have this unbelievable utopian picture, in my mind, in the Sermon on the Mount, to which you know, we're, we're living that out now in the here and now, of course, imperfectly, and, and we're doing it as members of a new kingdom, we're a new citizenry of this coming kingdom, and we're already beginning to live according to those ideals, anticipating us that one day we'll live according to them perfectly. I think of the whole book of Ephesians. Um, there you had people who were called out of decidedly pagan context for the most part, people who had been caught up in black magic and the occult and things like that. And now they're told that before the foundations of the world, God has saved them, called them, adopted them. In time, the Lord Jesus has saved them by grace and brought them into uh, this new kingdom, this new humanity. And now people are reconciled not only to God, but to one another. And now they're to, chapter four, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And for the last three chapters, Paul spells out what it looks like to, to walk now in the light. And to walk now, not as you used to, as Gentiles in the futility of your minds, um, but as those who have been called by Christ. I think of Titus, little book that's basically talking to a bunch of converted Cretans about how not to be Cretans. Mm. You know? <laughs> Cretans are liars and beasts and all that. You're not to be that way. You're to be a people zealous for good works. You're to be a people called by the grace of Jesus Christ to pray for leaders and love other people and are committed to good works that are profitable and good for people. Uh, he gives instructions for how the family is to be structured and organized all kinds of things like that. I, and I think of 1 John as well, which I've already mentioned, hmm. 
so much of what John is saying, he works so much with the motifs of light and darkness. And, and we are light. God is light, and we're attached to him. And now as agents of light, we live in a certain way where we love our brother and we serve one another and we live according to uh, the teachings of Jesus. So those are the sorts of material that come to my mind. Hmm. Alex, many church leaders today, they'll speak of the need to be relevant. And you're speaking about the need to be countercultural. Do you think these ideas relate to each other or are they uh, in conflict with one another? You think churches should be should seek to be relevant? Yeah, depends on what you mean by relevant. Yeah. So if what you mean is is we need to be relevant culturally, and mm. and and what you mean by that is we need to pander to the culture, or we need to take on particular cultural elements in the world that would thereby make us relevant to the world. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so if, if, if rock music's relevant or hip hop's relevant, well, then we need to have rock music and hip hop in our services. If jeans are relevant, then we have to wear jeans when anyone's up there on the stage or, or if a certain decor is relevant or certain topics are deemed relevant by the world, well, then we need to, you know, gravitate to those themes or subjects. No, I don't think that at all. Mm -hmm. But I will say this. If what you mean by relevant is we need to live and speak and minister in such a way that it actually is relevant to the deepest needs of human beings. What in the world could be more relevant than what I'm talking about? Yes. What could be more relevant than the Sermon on the Mount? In, in our day and age, with all the animosity and brokenness and dislocation that is present in our culture and in our world, what's more relevant than Jesus Christ, mm. who gives people the new birth and changes people by God's spirit and causes them to be transformed so that far from being racists or being haters of their brothers and sisters, they become lovers of their neighbors and lovers of their brothers and sisters. Far from, from, from being alienated from their spouses and from their children, Jesus shows us how to be whole and how to actually work for reconciled relationships. Far from being riddled and enslaved to sin and brokenness and addictions and all kinds of things, through the grace that Christ supplies, I can overcome these things. What more relevant than that? What could be more relevant than 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 taking us from a posture of sinfulness consigned under the just judgment of God and bringing us to a place of um, standing in the favor of God and inheriting forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus Christ. There's nothing more relevant than that message. There's nothing more relevant than what Christians have on offer. There's nothing more relevant than the Bible in a postmodern age. So, so I'm all about relevance. I'm all about bringing, bringing you know, relevant material to people, but it's not, you know... Um, you know, wearing jeans and 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 you know, talking about the news. What's mm. relevant is 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 God and the gospel and reconciliation between God and man and you know uh, uh, neighbors together. Hmm. Sometimes, Alex, it seems that I think we would all agree that 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 we agree that the the gospel and uh, the church has the answers to the most relevant questions. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the world isn't asking those questions. Sure. And isn't coming to us with those problems. They might be, you know, dealing with secondary or tertiary issues mm-hmm. that that they don't see to relate to sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we be seeking to answer the world's questions and problems, or should we be, or should we uh, uh, be trying to instruct them to ask the right questions? Well, both and. I mean, I, I, if if you're asking a secondary or tertiary question, like if someone's asking, "How can I have a healthy marriage?" Mm-hmm. That's a secondary question. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to answer that question, but when I want to show them how that question connects to a larger primary question, mm-hmm. which is how can I find meaning in life? 
I'm clearly going to this marriage. This marriage apparently means something to me. It, 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 it creates a framework for some sort of meaning and coherence to my life. So what you really want is meaning and coherence. Mm-hmm. Well, the Bible addresses both, how you can have a healthy marriage and how you can achieve meaning and coherence in your life. So I think we need to help people recognize that their lives are full of assumptions that, that they can't justify and actually based upon flimsy answers to life's biggest questions. And I want to expose that. At the same time, I want to show them about how answers to our deepest questions actually create human flourishing and speak to the secondary and tertiary questions. So, 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 so talking about surface level political issues, you know, how, do we, how do we improve education in this country? Well, I have something as a Christian to say about that. The Christian counterculture has something to say about that. But that's secondary to some larger questions that have to be answered first. And so I want to I want to I want to go from a question about how we can improve education in the United States to larger questions about God and his purposes for his image bearers and his creation and things like that. I had a professor who I think made a very important point that that many pastors and theologians are interested in in battles and debates that are not in their generation. So mm. this was this was a historian making this point. He he was particularly interested in trinitarian discussions in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. Yeah, the the fine points of Socinianism and why that was false. Mm. Uh, and not that trinitarian issues like that aren't relevant anymore, but he was making the point that pastors and theologians need to speak to issues like gender now. Ah, uh, yes. They need to, they're, they're fighting different battles. And there's a good example. So, so what, what, what's the big issue on a lot of people's minds? Gender identity. Mm-hmm. And I want to speak to gender identity, but I want to speak to something more fundamental, which is identity itself. Mm. What defines you? Mm-hmm. What makes you who you are? And that's going to get me to talk about issues of, of creation, of sin, of purpose, of meaning, that is so much bigger than just, well, what should the laws be related to transgenderism or something like that? Or should we have bathrooms for, you know, I'm going to speak to that, but I want to, I want to push through the cultural issue to the bigger systemic question, the bigger existential question, the bigger cosmic questions that the Bible is so taken up with, and then draw it back to whatever the present present debate is. But that's a great example. We should be paying close attention to the big questions people are asking and even the secondary and tertiary questions people are asking, and the church needs to be the place where they can find answers. Hmm. How does building a Christian counterculture affect our witness? Much in every way. I mean, um, I think it's Mark Dever uh, wrote a book called Compelling Community. Hmm. The idea of a city on a hill, something that's attractive and bright. You don't hide a lamp under a bushel or whatever. Um, the idea that, that the church is supposed to be a place where something eminently attractive is, is conveyed, is depicted, is seen, is experienced. And so, again, if we actually live according to the Sermon on the Mount, well, well, well there should be the, the Christian community should be showing to the world what human flourishing really looks like in God's economy and God's order of things and God's kingdom. We want people looking at the church and thinking, isn't God's kingdom wonderful? If people could really live like that, I need to be part of that. I need to have that. One of the ways I think we could especially do this in our day and age is is in our our love for one another, Um, uh, our, our hospitality, our unity, our commitment to serve each other, care for each other. A lot of people are looking for that. 
they're looking for quote unquote community mm-hmm. and they're not finding it in neighborhood associations and they're mm. not finding it in chat rooms and they're not finding it in their businesses and they're not finding it on social media. Oh, but we have it in the church. There's a bright light in the church and we want that to be on full display and that will be a huge part of our witness. The Bible acknowledges this again and again. I mean, Jesus said it to his disciples. They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. All people will know we're God's disciples by our unity, by our oneness, John 17. Um, other passages that highlight the love that we have for one another is evidence of the reality of the gospel. And so we need to make a whole lot more of that in our increasingly fractured and divided age. Hmm. Well, speaking of fracture and divide, at the time we're recording this, we're, it's mid-June, in 2020, and, and America is has just been consumed with at least two major issues, one being uh, the response to the coronavirus pandemic, and a second matter relates to race and injustice in America. What does it look like for, for churches to be countercultural today in this moment? Yeah. Well, the, yeah. I mean, the church has to be, has to become uh, the community that values and displays what unity and love really looks like. Um, the church becomes a community where each one is is not looking out for his own interests only, but for the interests of others. Um, the church becomes a body in which every member is valued and needed and treasured. Uh, the church is the community where disagreement is not immediately uh, seen as threatening to our identities or something we can't deal with, hmm. uh, but rather we model uh, how to disagree with charity and love and civility. The church becomes a community that talks about the image of God and the need to advocate for the oppressed and the disenfranchised. The church becomes a place where truth is valued and speaking the truth in love is of the highest priority. Um, yeah, I mean, we... we we, we have an opportunity to evidence, again, to a divided world, a world that's hostile, a world that doesn't know how to disagree with any sort of civility, what it's like to live as, as a new community, as a family of God, as people who love one another. Um, you know, in the church of Jesus Christ, there should not be any racists. Hmm. Systemic racism shouldn't be a problem in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lies and false narratives about those things should not be tolerated Mm. in the kingdom of Christ. Injustice of all kinds don't have a place in here. Partiality has no place in the church of God. Uh, Slander and gossip have no place here. Like you got a problem with online bullying and cancel culture? There's redemption and forgiveness in the church of Jesus Christ. You know, we don't we don't drudge up someone's sins from 10 years ago and shove it in their face and cancel them and kick them outside the community. Mm. Rather, when someone says, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? We forgive them and it's gone, mm. you know? So, so um, yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity for us to, to, to say it just has to be true. And I said this in a sermon a couple weeks ago. With all that's going on in, in these debates and in these problems, these things that plague our society, I mean, we should try to address them and make a difference. I'm not for, I'm not against, excuse me, trying to reform laws and uh, some measure of activism or something like that. But the thing that's much more important to me is that we can look our neighbor in the eye and say, I'll tell you what, this, this doesn't happen in the church of Jesus Christ. This sort of hatred and bigotry and animosity, these sort of people at each other's throats, you're trying to devour one another. You won't get that in my church. Hmm. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, love and peace and meekness and mercy and justice and truth-telling uh, prevail hmm. in, in the church. It's, it's utterly different. And I have found 
Um, though I might be an outcast in the world, I have found a home among the people of God. I have found a place where I'm cared for and loved, where every person from the greatest to the smallest is esteemed, from the poorest to the richest is esteemed, from the weakest to the strongest is valued and treasured because we're all valued and treasured in Jesus Christ. No one thinks of themselves more highly than anyone else because we're all sinners in need of the grace of God. And that creates such unity and love that we celebrate it, we sing about it, we have one another in our homes, we break bread together. Church is the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the most relevant thing in the world. There's nothing like it in the world. And I want to get that message out. Mm. Y'all come to the church. Mm. And I am sad, gravely sad, for so-called churches that have have um, uh, put forth a sort of sham picture of what the church is. Mm. Sadly, so many churches in the past and in our day and age are not are not displaying that picture. And I'm very sad, lest I sound self-righteous, of the ways in which me and my own local church have contributed in any way to a false picture of what Christ's church is. That said, we can try to live in line with the ideals that the Lord Jesus has laid out to them, hmm. to, to us, repent where we've fallen short, but hmm. try to exhibit this glorious picture of what the church is. Because again, there's nothing more relevant to our world today than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that needs to be exhibited more and more. Mm-hmm. Well, friends, with that, we're out of time. Brothers and sisters at Emmanuel Church, we love you and we're thankful for you. Alex, thank you for your time. I'm happy to be here, man. Thank you.